Good morning, everyone. If we could turn to the 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. 33rd chapter of Ezekiel. Reading verses 1 through 9. Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, speak to the children of thy people and say unto them, When I bring the sword upon the land, if the people of the land take a man of their coast and set him for their watchman, if when he seeth the sword come upon the land, he blow the trumpet and warn the people, then whosoever heareth the sound of the trumpet and taketh not warning, if the sword come and take him away, his blood shall be upon his own head. He heard the sound of the trumpet and took, not, or took the warning, his blood shall be upon him. But he that taketh warning shall deliver his soul, or excuse me, and took not warning. Verse 6, but if the watchman see the sword come and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So thou, O son of man, I have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. When I say unto the wicked, O wicked man, thou shalt surely die. If thou dost not speak to warn the wicked from his way, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thine hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the wicked of his way to turn from it, if he do not turn from his way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. In a lecture that was given at the Kentucky Bible School in 1999, by Brother Charles Kelly. He began his remarks, and some of you may, may remember, remember this if you were there that year. He began his remarks by recalling a conversation that he had had a couple of years before with fellow brethren at around one afternoon. This is what he had to say. He said, a sister made a statement that day that has haunted my mind ever since. She said that she had actually become so afraid that if she should embrace some error and go astray, that there wouldn't be any brother or sister that would have enough love for her to try to correct her. We were talking about the subject of the body embracing so many worldly ideas, being willing to go along with, I guess we can say, the various winds of doctrine in a sense. And I thought she showed an exemplary attitude, an unusual attitude, because she sincerely wanted to be corrected. And she was sincerely afraid that the body was getting in the shape. Maybe she wouldn't be corrected if she were to go off on an error. End of quote. We would ask that as we proceed with this lesson this morning, that the sincere concern expressed by that sister 
might be kept in mind. And hopefully it will be understood how her sobering observation relates to the subject matter of our class this morning. To provide some context to Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33 through 39 comprises a distinct, a distinct section of prophecies in the book of Ezekiel that primarily addresses the restoration of the kingdom of God as it relates to Israel and the open manifestation of Yahweh's power. But also contained therein are some extremely profound, sobering, and encouraging principles of conviction and conduct. Ezekiel 33 begins with the instruction for the watchman to warn Israel of impending danger and of their sins. Ezekiel 34 contrasts the evil shepherds of Israel who led the flock astray with the manifestation of the one true Davidic shepherd, Christ, who, has both, who as both watchman and shepherd will regather, protect, and nourish Israel under his superior shepherding skills. And the lesson, lesson of the watchman and shepherd, chapter 33 and 34, are closely related one to another, with much overlap as far as principles are concerned. Chapter 35 deals with the destruction of Edom, symbolic of Gentile power. Ezekiel 37 deals in great details to the eventual regathering and uniting of Judah and Ephraim under their king in Eretz Israel. And Ezekiel 38 and 39 deal with the salvation of Israel and the open manifestation of Yahweh's power after the catastrophic invasion of Israel and resulting destruction of the Gogian invader both on a personal and national level. Israel is warned by the watchmen of impending calamities due to transgression, as well as providing the opportunity of repentance and the promise of God's future and certain manifestation of salvation and glory. Regarding Ezekiel himself, Ezekiel went into, the, into captivity during the third of six deportations by the Babylonians. Ezekiel's contemporary, Daniel, had been taken during the first captivity, and Jeremiah remained in Jerusalem. Ezekiel was to prophesy to those already in captivity, while Jeremiah remained in Israel to prophesy to those still in the land. The scriptures bear witness to the fact that Ezekiel was a man, number one, of courage, number two, he was a man of sign, and number three, he was a watchman. As a man of courage, we must remember that Ezekiel, along with all of the prophets and the apostles, were commanded to deliver messages that were often not easy to declare, nor pleasing to the intended audience. His messages were often, his, and we should say all of their messages, were often warnings of impending doom due to sin. But they were also messages of salvation through repentance, as we know the great mercies of Yahweh, for eternal blessings and beautiful visions of the glory to come. They were both unambiguously negative 
and gloriously positive in their character. Let me repeat that. Their messages were both unambiguously negative and gloriously positive in their character. As God's truth, when untainted with human logic and sentiment, always is. Ezekiel's mission was by no means a pleasant one. Let's turn to Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And keep your finger here in Ezekiel 33, because we'll, we'll keep jumping back there. Ezekiel chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And he said unto me, Son of man, I send thee to the children of Israel to a rebellious nation that hath rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me even unto this very day. For they are impudent children and stiff-hearted. I do send thee unto them, and thou shalt say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, or Yahweh Elohim. And they, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are a rebellious house, yet shall know that there hath been a prophet among them. And thou, son of man, be not afraid of them, neither be afraid of their words. Though briars and thorns be with thee, and that dost dwell among scorpions, be not afraid of their words, nor be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. And thou shalt speak my words unto them, whether they will hear or whether they will forbear, for they are most rebellious. But thou, son of man, hear what I say unto thee. Be not thou rebellious like that rebellious house. Open thy mouth and eat that I give thee. Also chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. Behold, I have made thy face strong against their faces and thy forehead strong against their foreheads. As an adamant, harder than flint have I made thy forehead. Fear them not, neither be dismayed at their looks, though they be a rebellious house. These phrases that come up here, be not dismayed at their looks, their words. And we can imagine this, the rolled eyes, the laughter at what... Ezekiel would have to tell them. The disgust. Those that would say, there he goes again. What's his problem? Who does this guy think he is? But consider the great determination that is commanded here. Forehead against forehead. And you can think how an individual, when they get that determination, even children really show this, they get that determination, that crinkled brow, that is the kind of determination that Ezekiel here is commanded. Let's compare this with Jeremiah, who also was under the same command. Jeremiah chapter 1, sorry, Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 8. It says here, Be not afraid of their faces, for I am with thee to deliver thee, saith Yahweh. Ezekiel was also a man of sign. And we're not going to look this up at this time just for the sake of, of the time limits that we have this morning. But that's found in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 6 and 11. And we know that much of what Ezekiel did 
was to play the part. He acted out many of the prophecies that he was sent to deliver in physical manifestation. And Ezekiel was commanded to be a watchman. And our the focus of our consideration here this morning, Ezekiel chapter 3, 17. I left that and I shouldn't have. Ezekiel 3, 17. And with language here that is very similar, we're not going to read the whole passage here, but it's very similar to what we find in Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 3, 17. Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the word at my mouth and give them warning from me. We would be remiss if we did not address the meaning of Ezekiel's name. God, or ale, will strengthen. But this name is often accompanied with the added title of Son of Man. A title often connected to Jesus himself. Put together we have, Ale will strengthen the Son of Man. Ale will strengthen the Son of Man. Certainly this was true for Ezekiel as he needed all the strength that could be mustered and all others who put their trust in Yahweh as well. But as a man of sign, Ezekiel's actions and prophecies directly relate to Christ himself, the right arm of the Father, the Son of Man whom God himself has and will continue to strengthen, he who overcame and defeated the sin-flesh nature, and he who has yet to accomplish the unfulfilled prophecies of Ezekiel and the Holy Scriptures in their entirety. Christ was and is a man of supreme courage. He is the embodiment of all signs and types, and he has acted the part of the watchman in declaring the sins of the people, warning of impending dangers, and heralding the good news of the coming kingdom. Ezekiel was first ordered to be a watchman back in Ezekiel 3 with almost identical commands and consequences as found in the 33rd chapter of the same book. When Ezekiel was first commanded to be a watchman, there would be a great resistance to what God was commanding him to speak to the people of the Babylonian captivity. They would want to hear that their captivity was to be short and that they were soon to return to the land. The last thing they wanted to hear is that they still had sins to be repented of and that their captivity was to be long and that their beloved Jerusalem, an anchor of hope, was soon to be wiped off of the map. Ezekiel would experience the same thing that those still in Israel would demand of Jeremiah. And we're not going to look this up. But what did they demand of Jeremiah? Speak unto us smooth things, prophesy unto us deceits. That's what Jeremiah was dealing with. But there is a difference of circumstances as to the watchman command given in Ezekiel 3 as compared to Ezekiel 33. It's very subtle, but it's there. By the time we get to Ezekiel 33, and a period of time had transpired, Ezekiel had gained more credibility with the people as they saw that many of his prophecies were in fact coming to pass as he said they would. Now, they were more willing to hear the message. 
In Ezekiel 3, Ezekiel is commanded, he is commanded by Yahweh to be a watchman. But in Ezekiel 33, it appears, as alluded to in verse 2, that the people had taken or accepted Ezekiel as their watchman. And at the end of the chapter, chapter 33, more specifically verse 30, the children of Israel were told, and I need to look at that, it says, Also thou son of man, the children of thy people still are talking against thee. Against is not appropriate. It should actually say they are talking about thee. They weren't talking against him. They were talking about him. So they were, they were talking about Ezekiel and flocked to hear the word of the Lord through him. Verse 32. Lo, Ezekiel, thou art unto them as a very lovely song of one that hath a pleasant voice and can play well on an instrument. But even though Ezekiel had gained more acceptance, the result was no better. It goes on. They hear thy words, but they will not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their heart goeth after covetousness. They hear thy words, but they do them not. These two different circumstances that the watchman might find himself pose two different but yet similar challenges in regard to fleshly inclination. When the opposition is fierce, when shame and marginalization is the consequence for speaking truth, there is a danger of losing courage, of softening or compromising the message for better acceptance. When a sense of popularity or a degree of respect is enjoyed by the watchman, then there is a danger of feeding that pride that may result even more and doing everything possible to secure that degree of acceptance by telling the people what they want to hear, rather than delivering an unvarnished report of a thus saith the Lord. What we have to understand is that the responsibility to Yahweh's truth never changes. No matter what side of men's respectability meter we may find ourselves. But we do not have to fear for Ezekiel. For in 33.7, he is emphatically reminded as to the source of his original commission. O son of man, I, Yahweh, have set thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore thou shalt hear the word at my mouth and warn them from me. Now, we've thrown this term watchman around already quite a bit. But what exactly is a watchman? And what is his responsibility? The word itself is from a primitive root, which means to lean forward. That is, to peer into the distance. By implication, to observe and wait. This picture up here is actually a fortress that's placed in Hazor, which is about 10 miles north of um, the Sea of Galilee. 
Of course, there we obviously have a, a mock makeup of, of what a watchman would be doing. But they are to lean forward, peer into the distance. Because the watchman must lean forward, because he must peer into the distance, it is the duty of the watchman, or sentinel, which is another word, to see danger afar off when it is not yet apparent. To see danger when it is not yet apparent. When it is still at some distance, which requires extreme, if not excruciating, diligence. When the danger is out in the open, when it has been allowed to approach within striking distance, it is too late to mount an effective defense. The watchman has failed. We think in terms of the walled cities of old, especially in relation to Israel, where the watchman would peer across the landscape to detect any approaching dangers to their city. Was there something over the horizon? Is there strange movement among the bushes in the distance? It would be especially difficult in the night watch when the eye would have to peer into the thick darkness to detect the slightest hint of danger. Vision is greatly impaired by the cloak of darkness, and the ability to watch is challenged by our natural desire for sleep in the nighttime hours. We think of the parable of the slumbering virgins. We compare that to the spiritual darkness of our Gentile times and the gross darkness of these last days. And we fully understand the challenges to the spiritual watch that we are to keep both over ourselves and the watch against evil and harm to the household. Such watching involves the rise of danger, but also can be a herald for coming good tidings. And by some of the descriptions last night, we're going to hear those good tidings of coming things, that sure word of prophecy, and the clear and detailed signs that point to the good news of the coming kingdom age. When danger was perceived, what was the watchman to do? Verse 3, Ezekiel 33. When he seeth the sword come upon the land, and I'll paraphrase this somewhat, he is to blow the trumpet, the shofar, as was mentioned last night, and warn the people. It is the shrill sound of the shofar that calls attention to the people. In the spiritual application, as here attributed to Ezekiel, it was in regard to, as further elaborated in verse 8, to warn the wicked from his way. Let's go to Isaiah chapter 58, verse 1. Isaiah 58.1 Cry aloud, spare not, lift up thy voice like a trumpet and show my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Amos chapter 3 verses 6 and 7. Amos chapter 3, 6 and 7. Some of these I might move a little fast on. I apologize, but we are under time constraint. It says in Amos 3, 6, 7, Shall a trumpet be blown in the city, and the people not be afraid? Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Surely the Lord God will do nothing, but he revealed his secret unto his servants, 
the prophets. Jeremiah 6, 16 and 17. A very familiar passage to us. Jeremiah 6, 16 and 17. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways, and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. And often when it is quoted, that's where we, we pretty much stop. But there's more to the passage than that. What does it say? But they said, the children of Israel, we will not walk therein. Also, I set a watchman over you, saying, hearken to the sound of the trumpet. But they said, we will not hearken. There is a grave responsibility upon the watchman. And a watchman can be anyone who has seen or is aware of of existent danger. The principles as set forth to Ezekiel are not exclusive to Ezekiel. In a very real sense, all of us are appointed as watchmen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. But ye, brethren, are not in darkness, that that day, the return of Christ, should overtake you as a thief. Ye are all the children of light and the children of the day. We are not of the night, nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Watch ye, watch ye, stand fast in the faith, quit you like men, be strong, or in other words, be manly. And there are many, many other passages with similar language in regard to this principle of watching and that it is all of our responsibility. The course of of action and their consequences are clearly and simply laid out. If the watchman faithfully blew the shofar sound of warning, but yet the people did not heed the warning, then his blood, those being warned, shall be upon his own head. And he shall die in his iniquity. But thou, or the watchman, hast delivered thy soul. So not only is there grave responsibility upon those who sound the watchman's cry, or are supposed to sound the watchman's cry, but upon those who hear the warning. This is what Christ was up against when he lovingly provided his warnings to the seven ecclesias. Revelation 2, verse 7. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the ecclesias. This same statement is repeated in verse 11, verse 17, and verse 29. He that hath an ear, let him hear. But what if the watchman fails in sounding the alarm when danger is perceived? Ezekiel 33 again. But if the watchman see the sword come, and blow not the trumpet, and the people be not warned, if the sword come and take any person from among them, 
He is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at the watchman's hand. So not only are the people destroyed, but so is the watchman for not doing his duty. It is interesting that as recently as World War I, that the penalty for dereliction of duty or falling asleep in the case of a sentinel or watchman was death by firing squad. This is how critical the duties of a watchman are, whether it be in regard to the things of this world or of infinitely greater importance, watching over the household. If danger is not perceived when there is still time to put up a defense, even to the point of having the time to go on the offense, people will die. Where were the watchmen the night that the Medes conquered the city of Babylon? Where was Belshazzar in the midst of hosting a drunken party? As far as we are concerned, that danger is spiritual death, which leads to eternal physical death. People are most assuredly offended and irritated when they are awakened from sleep or comfort, either literally speaking or spiritually speaking, especially when the danger is distant or the warning seems unwarranted. There's also something known as normalcy bias, normalcy bias, which is the natural inclination to underestimate and deny coming cataclysm or change based upon the delusion that things will continue as they always have been. In in comments regarding this chapter and the often predictable reaction of some who are warned, H.P. Mansfield stated this. He said, It is far better to risk offending man than risk offending God. Brother Thomas Williams, when commenting on warning and the resulting action that is necessary in dealing with danger in the brotherhood, he hit the nail on the head with this observation. He says this, The result of all circumstances placed in our hands must always depend upon whether we are exercised by them. There are some who will scarcely move when they know the house is on fire over their heads. This is an inexcusable indifference and an attitude that is far from becoming on the part of such as have an interest in the house. The house of God is our house, and every faithful inhabitant of that house will be exercised when he knows there is danger. Some will rush with headlong speed in response to false alarms sometimes, and there will always be indifferent ones that will laugh at them and taunt them with having more zeal than knowledge. But when the alarm bell is sounded and there is even a possibility of the house being in danger, If in such a case zeal does get a little beyond knowledge, it is excusable. That would not be just the time to sit down and study the best scheme for organizing a fire department. Better run with all your might, even though your movements may not be graceful, and put the fire out, if there be any. And then when safe from the threatening calamity, become exercised thereby to improve for the future. Indifference, then, is out of the question. The truth and all its interests must be paramount. And those who will recognize this and act accordingly will be fit for the kingdom of God. Warning is just the first step. Action must be taken. In addressing those who are too quick to pull away from dealing with the dangers and rising controversies, Brother Williams also had this to say in the following year. 
The true soldier, soldier will never withdraw. He knows no retreat. What if part of much tribulation is to be endured in a field of carnage? It is nothing new for the faithful followers of Christ. Withdraw. Retreat, do you say? Perish the thought. Rather, tighten the buckles of your armor and march forward. And this is pretty rough language, brethren. If needs be, over the carcasses of fallen victims. Never let the tongue speak, nor the ear or the ear hear the word retreat, but press, reach forth until the battle until the battle is fought and the victory won. The Apostle Paul understood this responsibility. Let's turn to Acts chapter twenty. A portion of this chapter was read last night. Actually, I'm, I'm glad the brother Ernie read the portion that he did because it's a very good lead-up to what is stated in verses 26 through 31. And most of us are, are very familiar with this. Wherefore, I take you to record this day that I am pure from the blood of all men. For I have not shunned to declare unto you all the counsel of God. Take heed, therefore, unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Spirit hath made you overseers to feed the ecclesia of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, watch, and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day, with tears. The Apostle Paul could say that he was pure from the blood of all men. He did not fall under the consequences or the negative consequences of this watchman principle. He had done his duty. But through all of the very sobering, if not frightening, talk of danger, warning, and the dire consequences of inaction, there is also the promise of hope through repentance. We see here, as we see through the scriptures, the goodness and severity of Yahweh. Ezekiel 33.11 tells us, As I live, saith the Lord God, Adonai Yahweh, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. Oh, why will you die, O house of Israel? Repentance involves more than just sorrow. It involves a change of direction, a turning back. And verses 13 through 16 lay out the principle that if the wicked repent, that none of his sins that he hath committed shall be mentioned unto him. He hath done that which is lawful and right. He shall surely live. But it is warned here that past righteousness cannot be stored up as counting for anything if sin is turned to as a way of life or a state of being. The diligence of our thoughts, our words, and our actions is a constant one, just as the diligence of a watchman is to be. Brethren, there is no one saved, always saved, in this principle. But even with the most merciful extension given, man finds a way to question God in his dealings with men. The children of Israel would answer in response to this. Verse 17. 
the Lord is not equal. That is how they would respond. That was a predictable response that they would have. The Lord is not equal. In other words, what they were saying is that God was not just and did not carefully weigh the issues. Man, we have a canny ability to justify our own ways and perception of justice. But God answers such foolishness by making it very clear that my ways are not your ways. And it must always be remembered that in matters of atonement, in matters of atonement, God is perfectly just and supremely merciful. Now, the present applications and the dire warnings that this leads us to. We live in a very unique time in the history of this earth. We stand at the very cusp of a cataclysmic end to man's 6,000-year perceived attempt at self-rule and self-determination to be replaced by the long-promised, glorious, and perfect theocratic restoration of the kingdom of Israel. We are coming full circle on the road from Eden to Eden. But with standing here at this point in time, witnessing transpiring events that earlier believers could only view through the eye of faith, with this privileged position comes very stark and critical decisions and trying challenges as we strive to maintain the faith once delivered unto the saints in these extremely evil last days. What dangers must we be on guard against? What duties must we fulfill? What are we failing, or excuse me, where are we failing, and what must we repent from? These are matters of life and death, and these are questions that must be asked of ourselves and answers that must be found as we prepare for our day of judgment. As to give some background as to the dangers and challenges the household faces today, since World War II, Western society has seen a mind-boggling leap forward in amassed wealth, comfort, technology, advances in health care and ease of life, resulting in a heightened and more widely dispersed ability for the pursuit of pleasure. Whereas earlier generations spent their lives in their effort just to survive, that picture that we had up here last night. Those brothers spent their, their lives in the effort just to survive. This modern era has given us the freedom to not only survive, but thrive and enjoy life with little or no fear that survival is even a question. And though cracks in this way of approaching life are being seen in the current economic tremblings, relative to earlier generations, we still have it pretty good. And our instincts towards the pursuit of pleasure the satisfaction of self, and a heightened sense of self-awareness or focus are still very much intact in this present society. As the household of faith, though claiming to be strangers and pilgrims, we have very much benefited from and enjoyed the fruits that this modern era has had to offer. We've enjoyed successful careers, comfortable homes, and opportunities of travel and recreation that earlier believers could have never imagined. And these things are not bad in and of themselves, 
but they do take their toll on our spiritual strength and fortitude. They have been our blessing as well as our great trial, if not curse. Moses prophesied at the time when Israel, in their abundance and ease, would fall into spiritual weakness and corruption. In Deuteronomy 32.15, and I'm going to go ahead and read this out, but Deuteronomy 32.15, Israel is referred to as Jeshurun, and Jeshurun means the ideal Israel. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. Is this not the natural inclination of the flesh, to lose sight of our dependence on Yahweh when all is well? Is Israel not our example? Are we to think that we are immune from the same decline that overtook Israel? If we think that we're immune, why did Christ question as to whether or not he would find the faith, or as the diaglot renders, this belief at his return? Some 40 years ago, the household began to see a rise of more liberalizing attitudes that were adopting more modern views of how religion should be approached, how the truth should be believed, how it should be applied. Rather than appreciating the exclusive, pure, and uncompromising nature of the truth and fellowship in that truth, more inclusive views of fellowship between amended and unamended, for example, their models of doctrine were being pushed. Long-held beliefs were being watered down along with the adoption of ecumenical and emotionalism practices and beliefs as found in the mainstream churches. Emphasis was being placed on the value of things learned from a college education or the methods of management as found in the business world, adapting these as applicable to spiritual matters. This was the way of the Gnostics, the knowing ones who corrupted the early ecclesia. The household saw the rise of organizations such as the Williamsburg Christadelphian Foundation and Operation Onesimus that pushed centralization of authority and finance while also pushing the unification of amended, unamended, and even the Church of God of Abrahamic faith through intersocialization and fellowship of the young people and the promotion of various winds of doctrine through an expansive, and varied seminar program and tape library. As one of the promoters of these movements revealed at this Bible school, at this Bible school, in response to some who were questioning their efforts, he stated, and this is not an exact quote, but this is the, the, this is the, the principle put forward, is we may not convince the older generation, but we will get the children. And by and large, they have been able to accomplish this through changed and continued change of perceptions, Christadelphia, why? As to what the truth is in belief and how it is to be practiced. This is what one brother described, and it was Brother Jim Stanton. He described this as the Christadelphian Church of the Open Door. For a brief time, Operation Onesimus was even allowed use of these Bible school grounds until brethren, watchmen, were able to step in and put a stop to it. How different might things be here in Martinville if brethren had not understood the danger and failed to do their duty here. 
There were other brethren as well across our community that sounded the warning of the rise of Christadelphian liberalism and ecumenicism. I can never say that. And there were some who listened, many who didn't. Such watchmen were deemed too harsh, too unloving, too blunt in their warnings, even by those who were supposedly on their side, and even too old. But such brethren set their foreheads as flint. One unity effort after another came. But unlike unity efforts with the amended that had transpired in the early 70s and through previous decades that approached such efforts with full honesty and were able to come to the honest conclusion that doctrinal differences were too real, too great, and too fundamental, newer efforts were all too willing to water down doctrinal truths and focus on supposed social benefits of worldwide fellowship. I remember as a young person in the 1980s sitting in this tabernacle, and I can tell you exactly where I was sitting, one afternoon, while Brother Peak, when warning the assembly as to the falsehood of then-current unity efforts, taking a clear glass of water, he had a clear glass of water, all I have is a bottle of water, but he had a glass of water up here, comparing that water to the truth. Then he took some instant lemonade and mixed it with that clear water. It improved the taste of that water, but it was no longer clear and it was no longer water. What an impression that demonstration and warning made. A little so-called improvement or update here and a little dilution there, and you no longer have the pure waters of truth, as boring and tasteless as pure water may be to some. That was what was happening to the truth in the 80s, and which has only accelerated and expanded beyond the issue, beyond the issue of unamended and amended differences. With the rise of a generation, my generation, more influenced and trained in worldly logic and sympathies than in the simple and narrow ways of the old paths. Such unity effort efforts later evolved into the NASU and current Unity 08 agreements, efforts that ignore true and real differences between amended and unamended fellowships, while describing those who reject it as having, and I quote, done so in ignorance and based upon, I quote again, a false notion. This has wreaked havoc. As Brother uh, Taggart mentioned last night, greatly reducing the unamended ecclesias in Ontario and causing great division, even among the amended community who see the detrimental nature of allowing open fellowship between the amended and unamended. But apart from the long-existent unamended, amended unity issues, the spirit of liberalism and humanism has taken its toll on all aspects of the truth, doctrinal, prophetic, and walk. The name Christadelphian is being redefined before our very eyes. Warnings continue to go out, but resistance and lack of concern continues to grow as a rising generation, again my generation, speaks an entirely different language than their forefathers. In recent years, we've seen the rise of the legalism versus faith and Judaizer influences as a direct result of the liberalization movements of the 70s and 80s. That attempt to undermine and label doctrines and practices they view as traditionalist as outdated and a threat to what they perceive to be true Christian love and service to Christ. 
as well as bringing God and salvation down to man's comfort level in a more casual approach to worship and service. This has been an effective vehicle, an effective vehicle, adopted from the churches of the world who first came up with this and their attacks on their own traditional elements, which especially appeals to a younger generation. Within our community, this has led to the rise of distorted views on faith and works, the adoption of the false doctrine that the kingdom, in a spiritual sense, is in existence now, and all those baptized are already in it, that eternal life, in a spiritual sense, is a present possession, that the Holy Spirit is speaking to us through our dreams, and blasphemous theories regarding the nature of Christ's atoning work. All of this under the guise of merely questioning or challenging our faith in the spirit of friendly discussion, when in fact it is making a shipwreck of the faith and promoting another gospel. We also see the rise of the Internet and the Facebook phenomena as greatly exasperated or exacerbated or compounded and is accelerating the threats to the truth in these last days. Where every idea, cause, or question imaginable in opposition to the one faith delivered unto the saints can be promoted and discussed through websites, blog sites, and social networking sites, all under the name of Christadelphian. We have seen the rise of what some have rightfully and negatively dubbed, and I quote, the virtual ecclesia. A cyber world where there are no doctrinal barriers, nor personal inhibitions, and the influence of parents, the local ecclesia, and ecclesial leaders is made virtually void by the time spent in front of a computer screen. A whole different spiritual world where decisions are made and revolution, and yes, we mean to use that term revolution, and rebellion against the old paths is devised. And without the knowledge of those who do not waste their time in internet discussions and web surfing. I remember a sister warning me of Facebook when it was in its infancy on something to be avoided. This is a few years ago. She wanted me to address it uh, to the young people in the class I was teaching. As a social tool of the world, some 350 million people strong, and a place for self-promotion and personal attention in an egocentric world, and constant social connectivity and social addiction. It is something that we as strangers and pilgrims should leave alone. Not to mention it is a place where Christadelphians of all sorts of beliefs and agendas come together and where our young people, and not so young, have access to forums where any idea is as good as the next. And the speed of connectivity is mind-numbing. When the Christadelphian for Unity Facebook page was started a couple of summers ago, Within a matter of days, it went from a few dozen, a few dozen members, to over 600 members. Access to it now is restricted, restricted to members only. And to become a member, you must be accepted by the individual that started it. So dissenters and those with a watchful eye are not welcome. As one of its earlier posts declared, it was up to the young people to achieve unity. As recently as a couple of weeks ago, a couple of weeks ago, Due to some leaks that got out, discussion took place within the group among those who are unamended as to how all of the different issues standing in the way of unity, nothing specific mentioned here, were nothing more than pharisaical arguments. 
One individual stated, and I quote, and we'll come back to that, that image. He says, I will break bread with anyone who has a desire to follow God's will, both amended and unamended, baptized and non-baptized, Jews and Arabs, slaves or free. Unity has always been there. The only thing in our way is personal pride. This is something that Brother Adam put together. It's been maybe a couple months ago, kind of a montage of some of the things that you'll see on Facebook. Uh, it's not a pretty collection of different things that fall into the Christadelphian name. Some of those things up there are unamended. Some of those things are uh, amended, amended and unamended, both. I know it's a little hard to see. Other dangers and influences that have or are beginning to make their move, barring the soon return of our master. Christadelphians who have involved themselves with armed forces, political office and support of voting, law enforcement and even firefighting, putting at risk our position as conscientious objectors and those who support them. We are seeing inroads being made of so-called gay Christadelphians with even the suggestion made that it's okay to be gay as long as you remain, and I quote, in a loving monogamous relationship. This was put forward by a prominent amended member with the support of his prominent amended family. Considering the powerful inroads that the gay movement has made in the world and organized religion over the past 20 years, can we dismiss this trend as a threat to the household? Brethren, it's no joke. We are seeing the rise of a feminist movement within Christadelphia, demanding and attempting to use scriptural arguments that sisters be put into teaching and leadership roles within the ecclesia known as the One Voice Group. Threats to the truth never stop. And the ever-growing list is truly amazing. It is amazing. But how we react, the choices we make have life-altering consequences to not only ourselves, but to our families and our fellow brethren and sisters. Do we choose to warn and allow ourselves to be warned, or do we remain silent out of fear of the looks and words of others. And we were wrapping this up, Brother Bobby. Do we take action to deal with dangers when they arise, or are we willing to watch others fend for themselves? Do we allow the veil of political correctness to stifle the frank and unambiguous addressing of issues? Contrast the consequences of Eli's inaction in the day of the judges with that of Samuel, when every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Eli knew better, but he never took a stand. In contrast, Samuel demonstrated boldness and spiritual clarity, leading to the spiritual revival of Israel. It is the Eli approach that puts the truth in a compromised situation. We have heard brethren say, I still believe the same way that I always believed, while refusing to recognize or take action against the changing beliefs and circumstances of others around them. They are unwilling to make an unpleasant warning and choices that involve identification and decisive action against those who are in error, placing social concerns and self-preservation above the truth, which empowers those who embrace and promote error with unchecked influence and disregard for the need of repentance. As was the sin of the Israelites, quoting from Jeremiah 23, 14, they strengthen also the hands of the evildoers that none that the return from his wickedness. This allows for a mudding of the waters in regard to the practice of pure doctrine and true fellowship within the household. Therefore, the errors are allowed to prosper with a sense of justification, 
And those who may still believe the truth but choose to wish error Godspeed by tolerance and inaction can maintain their social, family connections and false sense of peace. While those who perceive no right or privilege of inaction or compromise, those who will not wish error Godspeed are put in an agonizing position in how to navigate the spiritual muddiness that results. Ecclesias are being divided. And the household at large is being splintered into many parts as the dangers and enemies of the truth overrun the ramparts. Not merely a splintering over personalities, as some wish to dismiss it as, but in doctrinal belief, prophetic understanding, moral conviction, and conflict on how problems in those areas should or should not be handled. In closing, we may not struggle with these issues in our own home ecclesias. But as a household in general, such dangers threaten us all. It does affect us. And the problems are worsened when we, and especially the young people, attend gatherings or Bible schools where representation of various liberal ecclesias, beliefs, and fellowship positions, dangers we have already mentioned, are either tolerated, accepted, promoted, or even celebrated as a good thing. Who or what we choose to associate ourselves with does have an influence on us, no matter how strong we think we might be. The scriptures are very clear about this. Fellowship means commonality. What are we willing to represent that we are in common with? Scriptural fellowship and fidelity to the truth is not just an ideal, but a command. Not something practiced when convenient, but at all times and under all circumstances, no matter if it is among few or many. Now, much of what we have already mentioned has overrun our past defenses, slowly at first, but has gained momentum under the Laodicean tendencies of our time, despite the warnings made. We must avoid an apathetic or exasperated resignation to the Laodicean reality of our times. Yes, it is the way it is to be prophesied to be, but it is not the required condition of our own relationship to things. Steadfastness, renewed zeal, self-examination, and yes, repentance is, if necessary, still possible for us. The Spirit Word is our watchman against all dangers. If we are willing to pay attention to its message, our pioneering brethren and brethren throughout the decades who have fought the deceptive and rebellious spirit of error in the past provide us with the precedents in which to follow, lessons in what should be and sometimes what should not be done. Let us be willing to sound the shofar cry of warning when necessary and the dangers are constant. And let us also and always be willing to heed the shofar sound when warned. Thank you for your time.